Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to London Thinks at Conway Hall, which is the home of Conway Hall Ethical Society, who are hosting the event tonight. I'm Sue Nelson, and first of all, I'd like to say well done for making it here tonight. I'm very impressed uh, that you've managed to... Uh, I won't even ask how you came here. I, I assume it will be a variety of skateboard, cycling, by foot. Um, I doubt if anyone managed to get on the bus uh, to get here, but we're very pleased to see you. And um, we do have a few statutory requirements, not least to point out where the fire exits are. I think the fact that you've made it here tonight, it would be extremely <laughs> unlucky if we would have to then use those fire exits. But in the unlikely event of a fire, please exit in a slow and orderly fashion via one of the exits, and you can see that they are here here, and I think there's another one, yep, to the left there. They all go out to different parts of uh, different streets, so there is a rendezvous point, which is the bronze bust of Bertrand Russell, which is in Red Lion Square, but uh, hopefully we won't be seeing you there. There's also free Wi-Fi here uh, at Conway Hall, and um, the Twitter hashtag, if you'd like to tweet about tonight's event, is London Thinks Diet all one word. Now, if you've ever tried to lose weight, you'll know that it's not easy. You can cut down on the carbs, you can count the calories, and yet it still doesn't always translate into a slimmer waistline, and I'm living proof of that. Now, the excuses are easy, you know, it could be heavy bones, it could be an underactive thyroid, but what if those millions of pounds spent on diet books and exercise classes are all in vain? Well, what if it's not what you eat, but what's inside your gut that counts? Well, two scientists are going to be talking tonight about how there's more to who we are than our lifestyle and environment, and that the trillions of microbes and bacteria and fungi inside our bodies are actually more important than calorie-controlled meals and fat-free yogurts. Now, the first person to speak is Tim Spector. He's Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, and he's also author of The Diet Myth. Now, his research is into microbes, genetics, and diet, and it may make us think twice about what we eat and how to watch our weight. Thanks very much, and uh, many thanks for coming. I uh, really appreciate it, the making the effort. And I'm hopefully going to give you some answers to uh, these big questions um, that uh, some of you are coming to find out about. Now, um, the reason I got into this subject was five years ago, and I was actually on holiday in the Italian Alps. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. And um, the... It was a ski touring holiday, uh, which was physically exerting. Basically, you climb up for six hours on skis and then ski down briefly for about an hour at the end. Uh, and at the top, at about 3,000 meters, I suddenly came over very unwell, managed to get down the, the mountain, and realized that I had double vision. And this persisted for um, several weeks, and I had a lot of very stressful time working out whether I had brain tumors or strokes or whatever it was, and it turned out it was reversible, 
and, but I was left with high blood pressure. So like many middle-aged people who previously fit and well, suddenly I'm faced saying, well, what can I do? I need to lose about um, eight kilos in weight and I wanted to get a healthier diet. And I thought, this has got to be, uh, uh, can't be a problem. I'm a, I'm a, I've been looking at obesity research for 20 years. I've studied epidemiology, diet. I've done these big genetic programs in twins. This has got to be easy, how wrong I was. Now, for the last 30 years, um, rates of obesity and allergy have tripled in virtually every country that's being measured. And this is despite our continued obsession and finickiness about what we eat. We're all interested in what we eat, and the proliferation of diets haven't really helped. And there are many crucial myths going around. One of them is uh, the, the calorie myth that uh, it's just losing weight is just simply a matter of reducing your calories and increasing your exercise. Well, calorie counting really doesn't work, and exercising also is not a way to lose weight. These are myths. And it's a dangerous myth to think that um, we are all reacting exactly the same way to what we eat. So we're going to explore this in a bit more detail, but what are we also being told by uh, so-called experts. It's very much about excluding things from our diet, okay? The way to get fit and healthy is to cut stuff out of your, every di your diet. So let's, get, let's pick on um, high GI foods. Let's um, get rid of gluten. Let's get rid of wheat, anything with grains in it. Let's get rid of anything with carbohydrates in it. Let's get rid of anything that has high fat or dairy in it. Let's get rid of meat, because that's deadly, obviously. And all you're left with <laughs> is a bit of juice and some vitamin tablets. And this is the least diverse kind of meal and food you could possibly have. And this is generally what's been happening to us uh, over the last 30 years for people who are trying to stay healthy. Just cut things out of your diet. And this is... Uh, one of the most dangerous myths that are around. Another example of these myths is what about high-fat foods? We've been told for perhaps 40 uh, or 50 years that high-fat foods are bad for us. And yet, the people that have at least two or three times as much fat in their diet as we do, say the, the poor um, uh, Greeks at the moment who uh, are going through a tough time, uh, they supposedly should be very unhealthy, but in fact they have many more centenarians than we do and have much less heart disease. And the idea that uh, they're unhealthy is really a total myth because they have a classical Mediterranean diet. And in a recent study of 5,000 Spanish people for, looked at for five years compa compared to a low-fat uh, UK-approved diet, um, they actually had a third less heart disease and diabetes and actually lost some weight compared to the low-fat group over five years of a massive study. And we don't really understand yet why this is, but we've got to start changing our views on uh, what the, the previous dogma was. Now, the elephant in the room and the elephant in this slide is that we've fail to account for one key organ in our bodies, and that is where our microbes are kept. These are, this is actually one of, nearly as big as our liver. Four pounds of microbes are contained in our guts, a hundred trillion of them. They outnumber our own cells 10 to one. 
meaning we're really not, 90% uh, of us is not actually human. They have about 100 times more genes uh, in them, and all of us have a unique genetic fingerprint. Uh, and we also, I mean, have a unique microbial fingerprint. You share relatively few of your microbes with the person sitting next to you. Take my word for it, uh, wait till the break to find out. But uh, so we, we are all unique, and this is probably why we respond to foods so uniquely. Now, we've all heard about gut reactions, and it may surprise you to know that actually in our guts are enough nerves and uh, networks to uh, equal the same size as a cat's brain. And our guts are responsible for actually the way we think and our moods. And our microbes actually can produce hormones, serotonin, for example, that alter, is a neurochemical that alters our mood. So the next time your gut tries to tell you something, maybe you should pay a bit more attention. Now, most people don't realize that our microbes in us uh, come throughout life. We're not born with them. We're born pretty much sterile. And when we come into the world, usually through uh, normal, uh, the birth canal of our mothers, that's when we get our normal microbes. That's when um, they get into us, and over the next three years, they start to develop. And identical twins uh, generally have fairly similar type microbes in those early bits of life. And it's only later in life they start to diverge. And what we've found in our twin studies is that, um, yes, there is a genetic component to this, so that some microbes like being in some of you rather than in your neighbor, and that um, these control things. But also, as you get older and you're exposed to different things and antibiotics, etc., you differ. And we find that uh, many identical twins who are essentially clones have very different microbes in their guts. And this can explain why one would be fatter than the other because they have a much different metabolism inside them. Now, we've found in our twin studies, when we've looked at thousands of our, our twins, looking at their microbes with genetic sequencing, shows that actually these bugs are not harmful as we thought. 99.9% .9 of them are actually friendly. So microbes are our friends. And we found one particular one which is very friendly. It actually keeps you thin. It's called Christensenella. And it was a previously pretty unknown microbe, but the tabloids have named it the fat-busting microbe. And you can actually buy it online from some site in Japan and sprinkle it on your muesli in the mornings. I wouldn't necessarily advise it, uh, but it's out there. And so what we found was this, this microbe, which was higher amounts in the skinny twins, ended up, when we t transplanted it into uh, mice that had, were completely sterile, you could keep them skinny even if you fed them large amounts of junk food. And I think this is really important. Now, we know that by studying many diseases and studying fat and skinny people, the consistent uh, thing we find with microbes is that the healthy uh, person has a diverse set of microbes. They have lots of different species rather like a rich garden with lots of different plants all growing in harmony, helping each other, no empty spaces. And the unhealthy person or the uh, obese person uh, with, or those with many chronic diseases have a, a, a shrunken 
range of species of microbes. And this, in a way, allows some of the rogue ones to take over because, like in any garden, if you don't look after it, weeds will come in and take over the rest. And this seems to be exactly what's happening in our guts. All of us are different, but the common commonality is this lack of diversity. And this is very much linked to health and linked to what you actually eat. Now, how many people here take some form of food supplement or vitamin most days? About half the audience? Well, that's about average for the population. Uh, on average, we take about half, half the population are taking some food additives, supplements, or vitamins to replace what they're perhaps not getting ideally in their food. And our microbes actually do this job for us. They produce about a quarter of the vitamins and a quarter of the meta metabolites in our blood. So they're absolutely essential. Now, studies have shown in epidemiological studies that over long term, studying hundreds of thousands of people, those people who take regular multivitamins and supplements end up with 30% more cancer and that 10% more heart disease than those that don't. So it doesn't sound a great idea, does it? And the reason could be that they're acting differently when you take them artificially than when you take them in real life. Because if studies have shown that if you compare people taking uh, actual broccoli, which contains some really helpful antioxidants, uh, sulforaphones, um, and you take exactly the same amount and you give it as a, a, a pill, the amount of, that's bioavailable that's actually active healthily for the body is three times more in the real broccoli. So let's not assume that just because you take it in a capsule, it's going to have exactly the same effect because it's ignoring the microbes that are there digesting your food and changing it chemically. And this is something we've completely ignored. Now, cheese is another good myth. Uh, most of your doctors said, oh, if you're worried about heart disease, best to cut out cheese. All dairy products, bad. No evidence for this at all. Regular cheese eaters actually uh, live longer lives, have uh, less heart disease. And one of the reasons is probably the billions of microbes there are in cheese, particularly the nice, smelly, unpasteurized ones. Uh, uh, and these are some typical French ones that you see crawling across the uh, plate as, they, as, they, as those little colonies start getting there. And as well as billions of uh, these uh, bacteria in there, there are five times as many viruses. They're going around eating the bacteria. And there are also lots of fungi in the blue veins, if you like, of the cheese, Roquefort and Stilton. That's actually that's fungal. Uh, when you're eating, tucking into those, you're eating fungi. And they're good for you as well. They keep this community healthy. But there are other little chaps in there as well, which um, uh, are called cheese mites. And they're all on the surface of the cheese when you look with a, with a, with a little a light microscope. And they're chubby little transparent chaps that are just full of cheese. So it's unclear, I don't know if there are vegetarians in the audience, how do you qualify when you, when you scoff these? Because yes, they're animals, but they're about 99% cheese. Now, what about junk foods? Um, that's cheese. Obviously, everyone knows junk foods are bad for you. But it's not really clear why they're bad for you, because previously it's been thought these are just due to the high fat and the high sugar intakes. So we wanted to look at 
how uh, these foods might affect our microbes and our guts. And uh, normally, uh, and for the book, I did lots of self-experiments myself uh, on different foods, but for this one, I wanted to choose a real expert, someone who uh, was good at doing this and could, could sustain it for 10 days non-stop without eating anything else. And who, who better than to pick my son, uh, who happened to be a highly trained student uh, who was used to really bad cuisine. And he was also hard up, so I paid for his trips to McDonald's uh, every day for, t for, for 10 days. And he was delighted, and his friends were very jealous. They said, wow, you're getting free McDonald's. It's so cool. Now, after about three days, the novelty had worn off slightly. <laughs> and he, was, he wasn't looking forward to his big trips to the, to the uh, restaurant every, every day. Uh, and he, was, he said, but I can do this, no problem. But um, after um, about a week, he'd really, uh, things had really changed, and he'd had enough. Uh, and he, he suddenly, he didn't feel well at all. But what was going on inside him was even more interesting, because what turned out that his microbes had actually reduced by 40% in terms of the species. So he'd lost 1,200 uh, species of microbes we just couldn't detect in him any longer. And two weeks after stopping, they still hadn't returned to normal. Now, this is probably not just the toxic effect of the, um, the burgers, but also the lack of fiber. They were literally being starved to death. Uh, as you get fatter, the other bit of your body is starving. And I think this is perhaps why uh, processed foods are so bad. So, what can you do about this yourself? So, um, uh, what are the other things you can do to change things? So um, we've talked about um, some of these, but prebiotics are interesting because they are the greens, the vegetables that contain actually the, the fertilizer for the microbes in your colon. They've got to get down there to feed these microbes and keep them alive and keep them diverse. And we're talking about things that are hard to digest because they have, our microbes have 200 times more of the enzymes that break down plants than we do. We really can't do it without them. And the best plants to eat are things like artichokes, um, things like leeks, garlic, onion, chicory roots. And there's a little bit in bananas and other things. But they're the, the key ones that are, in general, in, in many of the Mediterranean-type diets anyway. Uh, on top of that, uh, if you have lots of nuts uh, and seeds, uh, red wine and uh, coffee, strangely, they're all good for you. And they're good for you for a common reason. They all have these things called polyphenols in them, which are antioxidant chemicals, which, again, the microbes feed off and allows them to reproduce and, and, and generate other healthy chemicals, which keeps your immune system uh, healthy and your gut wall very healthy. Uh, chocolate I've got at the end. Um, everyone knows chocolate's bad for you. But that's just English chocolate. But if you take uh, high cocoa content, uh, uh, dark chocolate, 70% or more, the polyphenols overweigh the, the sugar. And actually, most studies are showing these are beneficial. So we're getting a lot of change in how we view foods when we start thinking of them from the point of view of our microbes. Now, yogurt, obviously, we know that's good for you. What about probiotics? Are they good for you? Well, they're certainly good for rodents. 
Absolutely. All the studies in mice and rats have shown they always give a good result. They can seem to cure them of any disease and prevent them getting others. For humans, the story is not so clear. It works if you're very young or you're very old or you've been on antibiotics. But for healthy people, the evidence isn't there yet that they really work. So they may work, but we can't prove it. The reason is we're all very different. We've all got thousands of different species inside us so that we need a tailored yogurt probiotic. You can't just count on one or two species working in all of us, rather like introducing a new species into the Yellowstone Park. Depends what that species is, is it going to fit in? Okay, so uh, things are improving, and in general, though, you're better off having a high-fat natural yogurt than you are probably a probiotic. Anyone here done some intermittent fasting? Any 5-2 dieters here? Yes, okay, about a third of you. And it's been one of the most successful recent uh, diet uh, ideas in this country, not so much in the, U in the US, but certainly really taken off here. And I've did, tried it myself. And the original books explain on the basis of changes in hormone levels in IGF-1 and all these other uh, type of things. But the reality is no one has proven that. And it looks much more likely that it's down to our microbes, that the same thing happened when you're a boa constrictor and you only eat a pig once every two weeks. In between times, your microbes completely change. And this seems to keep the whole system um, healthy. So when you're doing intermittent fasting, whether it's for uh, dieting reasons or religious reasons, this is healthy. This is what we were meant to do. And this cleans our gut linings uh, with special species of bacteria which suddenly increase 20-fold when there's nothing else to eat, and they nibble away at the gut, tidying it up, improving our immune systems. It's another reason that actually, again, another myth, you, your mother always told you, you've got, to, you've got to go to school with breakfast. You must never skip breakfast, most important meal of the day. Now, for some people it might be, but the studies are now showing that actually, if you have the same amount of calories in just two meals rather than three or four meals, you will lose weight. So again, showing that calories themselves are not important, but the timing and what it does to your microbes are. What about our ancestors? This typical lady was around uh, a million or so years ago. Uh, just at the same time, they invented the, the fur bikini. Uh, but she's there to illustrate the diversity of what our ancestors ate. And we believe that they would have like hunter-gatherers today, perhaps 500 different species of plants and animals over a year, with big variations for season, big variations uh, in, depending on where they were. They would just eat anything, and that's how we were adapted. And we've now changed to processed foods, where 85% of processed foods just have five ingredients. So many people are just having a really non-diverse diet. Antibiotics. Uh, anyone here in the room not had antibiotics? No. Well, we asked 10,000 of our twins, and we got the same answer. It's virtually impossible to find people who have not had antibiotics, and clearly this has all happened since about 1950. And they, are, the average person, 18-year-old, has had 18 courses of antibiotics. The average three-year-old has had three. So one a year is this now the norm. The vast majority are necessary, but they do wipe out our microbes. 
It's a basically a massacre, a little, an atomic bomb inside our guts. And the more you do it, the worse and the, and the more selective our microbes become, and we wipe out some of these species forever. And it's also in our foods in our supply because it's used extensively in farming, where 80% of all antibiotics are used in agriculture. Now, if you do all the right things and you still want to change your gut microbes, what can you do about it? What radical things might you want to pick? Well, um, you might want to try these tablets. You've got to take uh, 10 of them for three days continuously, and that sounds fine, but I'm telling you what our doc, they're technically known as frozen poo, or uh, otherwise known as crapsules. <laughs> From a healthy donor into an unhealthy recipient. And uh, it seems a bit weird, but this is now the number one treatment for uh, serious gut infections in the US. Uh, so C. diff infections um, are cured 85% of the time with this kind of treatment. The other method, which I haven't shown you, involves a Magimix and lots of tubes, but I think you can imagine that and why I showed you this one instead. You can go on the web if you're really interested. But a lot of people are doing uh, these transplants themselves, and as we work just from these severe infections, it's quite possible there'll be other applications for this. But be careful who you get them from. If that person ended up, was, was a bit of a chubby one, or they were a prone to depression, you also might not have that for life. So there are uh, potential side effects. So to sum up, um, I hope I've, I've shown you the first, that there are lots of myths out there, and the rule number one is uh, don't believe any expert, be critical, and even me, uh, don't take everything I say at face value. Um, a calorie is not a calorie. We are all very different. We need uniquely tailored um, uh, diets to us. And you're not going to go far wrong if you treat yourself like a garden, which means um, you give it plenty of fertilizer with your prebiotic fruit and veg that's rich in different types to keep them all alive. You occasionally might sprinkle on new things uh, little new seeds to see if they can take um, uh, into that area. You vary things around seasonally as much as possible. You experiment because we're all different. Just because your uh, sister or your brother or your neighbor does well on that doesn't mean you're going to, to experiment. Avoid toxins like processed foods other than for occasional uh, experimentation. And uh, avoid antibiotics as much as possible. So do all that and you're not going to get, go far wrong. And the key to this is um, that you've got to eat as varied as possible because diversity is the key. And the final message is, with 100 trillion microbes in your guts, you're never going to truly eat alone. <laughs> Thank you. I should, uh, sorry, there's uh, one, yeah, just one, I did forget to mention, if any of you are keen uh, and are potential citizen scientists, uh, there is a project which uh, I started uh, about six months ago called the British Gut Project, uh, which is related to the American Gut Project, by which uh, signing up on the internet 
you can get your own microbes tested for 75 pounds and get the whole sequence back and work out how you are compared to other people. And the idea is this, this data is freely available to all, all scientists in the world. Everyone can access it, and you can actually go on and to this site or the American Gut and actually start playing with that data. So uh, it's good for you and perfect Christmas present for Granny. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll, thank you. Thank you. Now, our next speaker is Barbara Prainsack. Now, she's Professor of Social Science, Health and Medicine at King's College London. And her work explores the societal, regulatory and ethical implications of biomedical innovation for our society. Good evening. Um, I'm not going to talk about how to lose weight. I will, <laughs> I will talk about something that I believe is a much bigger issue, and it goes beyond what accounts for making us fitter or slimmer or bigger, but something that concerns society as a whole. But I will start at the beginning. What Tim, Tim Spector's talk showed very well is how our beliefs about what makes us healthy and what makes us sick have changed. Um, red meat, you mentioned, you gave us uh, several examples, but one was red meat, so for a while um, people were told that eating red meat was actually bad for us, and nowadays we're being told that it depends on what microbes inhabit our guts. But what if the microbes in our guts are only the latest chapter in a history of changing our minds and changing our science about what makes us healthy and what makes us sick. So I, I don't think there's anyone here who uh, will remember this, but this actually started with the ancient Egyptians and went into and, and ended in the late 19th century when there was the belief that what made people healthy and sick was a particular balance of um, what was called um, the humor, so the body liquid in the body. And in order to re-establish health, what you needed to do is to re-establish the balance between those wonderful substances that are called yellow bile, black bile, blood and phlegm. And then if we fast forward to the end of the last century, to the Human Genome Project, the Human Genome Project had the, the aim of discovering the real truth about health and disease again. And not only about health and disease, but also, as this quote here by an Icelandic colleague, um, Gisli Palsson, who has worked a lot about this, shows, the idea was that everything we know about the human body is superficial, and understanding the human genes, the human DNA, will tell us about the real essence of race, and the real essence of sex and gender, and the real essence of, of, of health and disease. And the enthusiasm around this was so big that, and you're all familiar with this idea, that we could even personalize medicine. So instead of giving everyone the same drug, we would tailor um, people's drugs and treatments to, their, to characteristics of their own genomes and of their genes. And the Human Genome Project did not really deliver on that promise. 
um, we don't have personalized medicine rolled out in, in, in our doctor's offices, there are some um, clinical applications that actually use this, but it's not that everything nowadays is target to, targeted to our genes. But the, the Human Genome Project has taught us a lot about what the gene sequence doesn't tell us. It doesn't, it's not a blueprint for health and disease. And some people assume that what we need to do is we need to consider a much wider range of information and a much wider range of data to understand what makes us healthy and what makes us sick. And here, gut microbes are one of the different types of data that people want to consider. So this is where the, the term precision medicine comes in. Precision medicine is something that was um, used in, in policy reports and papers. This is here an example of the uh, US National Academy of Sciences. And for those of us who are using Google Maps on our mobile phones or on our computers, this will look very familiar. The idea is that to understand human health and to personalize healthcare, we need to bring together different types of information starting with very stable information that doesn't change, such, the, such as the DNA sequence, to information that does change, such as how our genes are expressed, um, up to information that can be very dynamic, such as the blood pressure variations. And to integrate that would deliver a map of human health. So it's not only the DNA sequence, it's not only the gut microbes, but it's the combination of everything. And this idea is actually taken to an extreme here. In this slide, um, this, has come out by, uh, this has come out from a group of scientists in Harvard who say that to really personalize human health care, we need to bring, in, bring together much more information, not only um, the, the results of, uh, of, of physical examinations, sorry, here, um, and not only what comes out of the lab and what comes out of the clinic, but also, um, I'm, I'm not expecting you to read everything, of course, but also police records, um, ancestry information, um, grocery store purchases, and for those of us who are active online, also our social media profiles and postings. Because those types of information can, can when, when they are analyzed, um, with the help of predictive analytics, they can actually tell a lot about people, so the argument goes. Things about, about, so things about different parts of your life that ultimately also relate to your health. And the, the advantages of such an approach are obvious, of bringing together more information than just um, people's DNA or then just people's blood pressure measurements. But the, the, the disadvantages or the potential risks are also, I believe, worth considering. So one of the risks that everyone has heard of is data protection. Usually discussions about data protection start with discussing how people's data, once they have been collected, can be kept safe. But data protection discussions in the health domain should start when we talk about what data to collect and use in the first place. And it starts when, again, 
e-health, electronic health, and mobile health is a very fast, it's a, it's a very growing segment of the market at the moment, when on many websites there's some small print somewhere about you agreeing for the website to use your, your information and your data if, when you use the website. So a lot of people do not actually know what kind of data and information is collected and used about them. And the second related issue is that some of this information is being used against people. This report that uh, is on the slide here was published in 2014 um, in the US, and it gives very concrete <coughs> examples of how practices that used to be practices of credit scoring, bureaus, are rolling out into wider domains of life. Um, there's a new technical term now, which is called health scoring. And seemingly innocuous pieces of information about you, or about people, can be used to, to assess whether somebody is likely to be in a group that has a particular high particularly high risk for something. This risk could be defaulting on a mortgage, but this risk could also be um, becoming a so-called frequent flyer, which doesn't mean that you spend a lot of time in the, airport, in the airplane, but it means that you are likely to um, overuse emergency rooms. And those people who are frequent flyers should then, of course, be supported by um, special care and attention. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination what the flip side of this care and attention would be. The, the final point that I want to make is, is the point of function creep. So function creep is a term that refers to um, information or data being collected and, and used for a particular purpose, then being used for another purpose just because it's there. Um, to give you an example, um, a, a man who donated his DNA to a, um, to a, a project organized by the Mormon Church. It was a project that looked into genetic ancestries and family histories. This, the son of this man found himself a suspect in a murder investigation because the, 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 the database had given his DNA information to the police. And if you think that this is fear-mongering, well, it is in a way, but also there have been people already, as you see in this article here, that have been um, suggesting that these kinds of uh, microbial uh, data that Tim says he will use for health research, and of course, I believe him, could also be used, to, um, could also be used in the context of criminal investigation because people leave behind what is called here a microbiomic fingerprint. And this looks very similar um, in terms of the conceptual um, um, template to a DNA, to a DNA um, a fingerprint, so-called DNA fingerprint used for, for criminal investigation. So, does this mean that we shouldn't sign up to the British Gut Project? I think many of us should. The only thing that I'm suggesting is that both as individuals and as a society, we should really make sure that we think through how we want to put these things into practice, how we want to bring our health information together, um, how we make decisions on what 
information of, about ourselves we give away so that using our health information and looking at our gut doesn't start to hurt us. Thank you. I'm going to ask Barbara and Tim a few questions and then the, it will be open up to the floor for you to ask whatever you want. Uh, but when that happens, do wait for the microphone to get to you so that we can all hear what it is you would like to ask. Um, taking up, I mean, that was a very interesting end point that Barbara finished with, saying that actually, effectively, what's inside your gut, your combination of microbes, could be as uniquely identifying as, say, a, a personal fingerprint. Does that mean, then, that in your studies with identical, with twins, so not necessarily identical, were they? Or half identical. Half, half identical, non-identical. Does that mean with the identical twins, were their sets of microbes identical or were they different? Both. Some microbes are highly genetic and others are just uh, come and go at the whim of what you're eating or what's blowing through the air or where you live. So um, obviously we've got thousands of species and we have a certain combination of microbes which I think is partly comes from um, our mothers, so we, we inherit them from actually her, her guts as, as we're born, that is, unless we have a caesarean section, which means we inherit the microbes who ever picked us up first, whichever nurse happened to touch you. That's another story. Uh, but most people have uh, genetic components which stay with them their whole life, so more or less. So uh, this rare combination of people is like a, a fingerprint. And it doesn't matter what, even if you have antibiotics and you go on a, uh, you know, have a disastrous trip to India and eat the wrong food, you still have this, this core of microbes that is pretty much you. And uh, that's why, you know, microbes, uh, if you give me a, a set of microbes or a set of genes, I can always, I can with much greater certainty say which comes from a healthy, a uh, lean person than from a fat, uh, obese, uh, you know, person with a disease. It's actually much better because it's a combination of our genes and our environment. I mean, you've said that um, it's effectively like a sort of... Bi you, we basically want a biodiverse <laughs> gut. We want a nice collection of microbes that looks like that garden mm -hmm. with all the flowers. Is there a sort of optimum or a minimum number of species that the gut needs in order to maintain that balance? Um, there may be, but we don't know it yet. Uh, this is a very young field. We're still getting the big enough numbers. I mean, the numbers that we're getting, you know, of just uh, the publishing on 1,000 people is one of the largest studies ever done. So we, you know, we probably need to get 10,000 or more people before we can start to say where some of these thresholds are. Uh, and my, my reaction is that, you know, it, it's going to depend on your environment. It's going to depend on your age. It's going to depend on a lot of factors. I don't think there'll be one set marvellous number that you've got to get. Because it, it might also be which ones they are rather than necessarily pure 
pure numbers. It also might be how diverse they are rather than the numbers. Have you noticed, though, in, in the studies of 1,000, that there are certain species of microbes that crop up again and again and again with the people who are perhaps slimmer than the more overweight Yes, people? I mean, and, and that's how we found the Christensenella bug, is because that was the one that was consistently higher in the skinny people and virtually always absent in the uh, fat people. So there are others, and once our numbers of our studies get bigger, we'll be able to uncover them all. But the same bug can have a very different effect in Africa than it has here. So that's the other thing we must remember. It isn't like one size fits all. These bugs might depend on their neighbors. They might depend on the community. And a bit like you know, squirrels or beetles you know, will behave differently when they're surrounded by other animals or in a different habitat. So our microbes might behave. So we mustn't say that this bug is always bad or this one is always good. It, it's going to depend on the context. But I think the analogy with the fingerprint or the, the DNA test forensically is a very good one. Uh, so, but it, it's a hard concept because you, know, you can change it. You can't change your fingerprint. Um, but it's, it's in like what's in the core there with all this other stuff going around. Because when you take a fingerprint, basically that's your it doesn't change, um, but your microbes will change, but you can't unpick totally the, the core that you were born with that is, that is genetically attracted to you. You did say that um, in some cases, if you lose a certain species of microbe, you've lost that forever, which I thought was a slight contradiction with if, if you ate the right foods, then you're introducing new microbes. Yes. So why would one be lost? Um, I think there are some species that, uh, for example, the use of antibiotics, as everyone in this room has had antibiotics. So if there's a microbe that is just killed out forever and there's nobody else around to repopulate that microbe, it only lives in humans, and there's no humans around to keep it going from one to another, that's gone. And, and they've found uh, thousands of species in some of these hunter-gatherer tribes in the Amazon or in, in Africa that... Uh, have long disappeared Western species. So um, hundreds of types of E. coli, which is the commonest bug, uh, exist in these tribes that don't exist anymore in us, but we believe did exist. So we could get them back, and in a way, there are people, uh, sort of eco-warriors, going out there to collecting the poo of these Amazonians and, and trying to reinfect themselves with it so they can bring it back to the West and reintroduce these species a bit like, you know, people who are you know, bird watchers and we're trying to sort of, you know, get these rare species back into our into our guts. So it's a, it's something that you can take at lots of different levels, if you like. And is the only way to introduce a new type of microbe into your gut through food and drink? Is there not another way? I mean, you hinted at it with the microbes of whoever's the first person to get hold of the baby from a cesarean section, which suggests that it's in contact, skin contact as well. <coughs> well, micro we're surrounded by microbes. So just opening our mouths, you know, we've got millions of microbes landing on our tongue, you know, uh, just touching people's clothes or seats or whatever. Uh, we are getting them. Um, when you, there are billions in a bit of earth, and so gardeners, they think, have actually more diverse microbes than non-gardeners because they are being exposed to many more uh, healthy microbes and things and that. Uh, so, 
but it, it sounds like a sort of an old argument, really, which is you, you shouldn't be too clean. Correct. So this goes hand in hand when some of, some of the audience may have heard of the hygiene hypothesis, um, which uh, a colleague of mine, David Strachan, uh, coined about 20 years ago. To say, paradoxically, people with asthma and respiratory infections were living in big families in poor housing with damp conditions, and they were all living together. Uh, and they, they looked at the different family members and found out that the ones, it was usually the, uh, the, the, the youngest one was protected because they had all these other brothers and sisters infecting them with things. And the single kid brought up in a suburban, sterile environment had five times the rate of asthma. And generally that's true, people who live on farms have less allergies than people who are brought up in very clean middle-class homes. So we're going back as, you know, reversing these old uh, trends of what is healthy and what isn't, and realizing that we shouldn't be over-sterilizing kids' bottles. Uh, they've done studies with, uh, with parents who suck the, the dummy of the kid and give it back to them rather than stick it in some uh, sterilizer with tablets and chlorine are actually having, giving health, have healthier microbes in their kids and less allergies. So I think understanding this is, is making us change a lot of our relationship with health, not in terms of just food, but also our, our total environment. So that my advice now is really, you know, avoid over-sterilizing things. Think how many times anyone's ever got ill, really, by picking something off the, the floor, uh, you know, obsessed with washing vegetables so thoroughly. And in a way, it goes hand in hand with the organic food movement, that a little bit of dirt on your carrot is probably good for you. Uh, scrubbing it with chemicals is probably bad for you. Um, obviously, you've got to get the balance right. We don't want to go back to third world countries with cholera and things. But I think we've gone way over the, the right thing with far too much plastic wraps and sterilization. And uh, this means that we're just not exposed to this whole range of microbes, which probably kept us much healthier and allergen free. Because, as I was saying, it's not just the obesity epidemic, it's this whole allergy epidemic that is because people are restricting not only their foods, but also their lifestyles and not letting their kids run around and play in the dirt and, uh, you know, people, if you have lots of animals, you pet the animals, yes, you, you get the microbes from your dog or your cat. And we were told that was dirty and that was bad, but actually that's good for you. All the evidence is pointing it's good for you. Which is another sort of reversing, I mean, you hinted at it, isn't it? this, you know, what's, it could just be the latest thing. Uh, microbes could potentially be the don't eat cheese from five years ago or only eat carbs, only eat protein. It, it does vary from... But you're, you've got a unique resource, in a way, through working with twins because you are able... You've then got, particularly the, the identical twins, you've got um, genetically identical. You could then restrict the intake, the calories, effectively, or the foods in terms of, and then measure what their guts are. What have you found through looking at, at your twins? Have you found that you can get twins who they will eat exactly the same, do exactly the same exercise, and yet their bodies will react very differently? Yes, I mean, just to be sure, we don't do cruel experiments on the twins by starving <laughs> them, which you suggested well, we do. Well, restrict, so uh, yeah. If there are any twins yeah. in the audience, uh, yeah, we yeah. Don't, we're, we're very nice to our twins. Yeah. Um, but... Yes, uh, on average, uh, you know, weight is extremely genetic. So on average, they are 
within one or two kilos of each other uh, as adults. But there are exceptions, and one in 10 differ a lot. And that's, you've got to explain that in genetic clones who are brought together, who have lived all their lives together with exactly the same DNA in all their bodies. And there's only a number of things that can differ. And very often they do have different microbes inside them, and they may have had different courses of antibiotics in their life, or one went on, you know, traveling around India and got very ill and had a, a transformation. And, but occasionally we do find twins where one just did, they ate exactly the same food, one just kept getting bigger than the other, eating exactly the same. And at the moment we can't explain all that, because we're looking backwards in time. Uh, but I think we've got to look at some of these other explanations. And, and that, in a way, is, is telling us that if we all had exactly the same plate in front of us, all ate the same food, we would all gain weight to a completely different extent, which is not what we're taught. And we need to understand why that is. And it isn't just, you know, some people are greedy, some are not. It's the way we, we digest that food, what we do with it, and it's all a complex, between the enzymes from our genes all the way down to the different microbes that make a big difference. And because the thing that's exciting about the microbe field is because unlike genes, you can change your microbes as my son did in just a couple of days. And for what you can make it worse, you can also make them better. So it's extremely modifiable. And that, to my mind, is you know, something you don't need to wait 20 years to do with new drugs. I mean, you said it took your son, even after several weeks, he hadn't got all of his original species of microbes mm. back. Have you tested them recently to see where he's gone up on the gut level? Uh, we've tested him, I haven't got the results back yet. The trouble is, he, he, after a brief flurry of running to the supermarket to get some uh, salad and fruit, uh, he reverted back to his student days <laughs> and got frozen lasagna again, you know, for, for 99p. So um, he hasn't, hasn't had the healthiest of diets, but. Interestingly, if you compared him and me, you know, he's got, uh, he had about 3,000 discernible species in his guts, and I have 6,000. What is the average? Difference. Is there an average number of species? Uh, it depends how you measure it, but I mean, in those sort of terms, it's, it's probably around four, four to 5,000. It's amazing, isn't it, just to think that you've got 5,000 species of microbes in your, in your exactly. gut. Exactly, you've got to look after them. Do you, do, you see, do you see this purely as, I mean, this is, um, this is the way healthcare is going, isn't it? It's huge amounts of data, um, be it on our, on our guts or, or not. How serious an issue do you think it could become, the fact that information like this becomes widespread and shared? Because that's also a, a, a new trend, particularly actually with people with cancer as well. Mm. They are sharing their genome to see if there is anything matching with, with other people who've had similar issues? I think for many of us, routine healthcare hasn't changed that much. It's not a big data endeavor. It's still using many of the same ways of stratifying patients, deciding what drugs to give them, what treatments to give them than um, many years ago. However, there are increasingly projects and I don't think the British gut is one of them, actually, that um, under the label of citizen science um, and under the, uh, under the lure of altruism and data sharing um, make people sign over um, a lot of their, their personal information 
to organizations that then make profit with your data. And that alone for some people could be an issue. Um, another issue for some people could be that when you link different types of information, especially when it's stored online, um, can lead to identification of, of individuals, even if they're not named. So, um, I, I, I thought that the um, enthusiasm about different health data, and in this case, the gut, is a good way of, of demonstrating the lure and that also the, 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 the risks involved in it. I think that um, projects like the British Gut are actually thought through relatively well. So, because this is a project that will make data available um, for everyone, so it is something that is for public benefit. However, in theory, also people who have uh, bad things in mind can, can use them. But it is something where um, no company has proprietary rights on data, and this is not something where um, the participants who send in their samples also um, pay the salaries of, of, of people like Tim. So this is by no means a bad example. But um, there are, among the many good projects that are coming up around different body parts and different types of, um, of uh, microbes and different, different types of body substances, actually, there are also a number of, of bad apples. And I think we should not, just under the name of science, enthusiastically participate in all of them. Part of this dichotomy, in a way, is, um, and you said, why aren't there, when is this going to be hitting the public, is because we have uh, our healthcare system controlled by doctors. Uh, and if it doesn't go through them, they're definitely not interested. So doctors know nothing about these areas. I can say that as a doctor, apart from me. Uh, but uh, there's nothing in our training. There's no training about nutrition. There's no no training really about genetics, and when new things come on board, your GP isn't going to have a, a clue about what of this stuff. And you can't actually test any of these things, although it's relatively cheap and done research-wise, on the NHS. So there is this huge gap, and this is why this, this citizen science, you know, these crowdfunding things are, are gaining momentum, because people want to be empowered themselves using a mobile phone and an app. They can get on there, get this data, and, you know, in the event of Google, you don't need your GP to ask a question. Wikipedia does a much better job of asking, you know, all these daft questions that people want to know about their bodies and things. So um, I think this is this huge gap between what the professionals are trying to do, which is trying to constrain things into very conservative things that have taken 20 years and gone through, and that's why it's leaving this, this huge pressure to get data out there and have this alternative system, if you like. There's, there's, that's one way of putting it. Some people will do this because they want to empower themselves, they want to know more about their own guts. But let's not forget that a lot of people who would respond to a project that recruits for science do it because they want to help other people. Sure. And I think any, any project that does this ethically needs to say, your data will then be online for everyone to take. We can never exclude that people will be re-identified. And, and if, if you're happy to do that, it's great. But it is important that that is also be, being said to people. And before we hand over to the floor, I would just quickly like to ask, how do you measure the species in a gut? This might put you off your evening meal, but I would just like a quick okay, description. Well, so it's the same way the British gut does it. So 
if you sign up for the British Gut, uh, you pay your 75 pounds, you get sent a DNA testing kit in the post, which is basically a cotton bud, mm -hmm. and you wipe that on a bit of toilet paper, and you put it back in the tube, back in the envelope, send it back to us at St. Thomas's Hospital, and we send it to these labs in California where they extract the DNA from the microbes, and you're getting the... Mi so this is the DNA of, the, say, the 6,000 microbes, and each one has a very... has a characteristic gene that has different types to it. You identify it from their genes. So using genetic analysis, you work out what the microbes are. In the old days, you had to culture them on little plates, and only about 1% of them properly culture. So this way, you get everything, and by identifying the genes, you put that into a database, work out which gene goes with which bug, and hey, presto, you've got your answer. Excellent, right. Right, um, we have a question from the front. If you just wait for the um, microphone, please. It's uh, this gentleman here. Um, Barbara, you're from Iceland, I believe. You're from Iceland. Are you from Iceland? No, I'm not from Iceland, no. Oh, I thought you were. No. I was going to ask a question about that because <laughs> 10 years ago, with the business of genetics, they did the whole population of Iceland, or yes. Muslim agreed to it. I was just wondering if there was any, anything came out of that. We never had anything beyond that. Big data, end of question. So, the Icelandic population um, was considered a particularly um, insulated population. There's a lot of controversy around that, but also because the Icelandic population has had a, a publicly funded healthcare system for a long time. They had records, they had genealogical data, and um, as, as you said um, about over a decade ago, the idea was born that all this information could be brought together with people's DNA, everyone's DNA. And the idea was that the, the, the information would be um, integrated, similar to care.data here, with people not opting in, but people opting out, except for the DNA. For the DNA, people were supposed to opt in. So that project failed for, for many reasons, but one of the reasons was that, that the, the physicians didn't want to hand over the medical records of their patients to a national biobank. So now there are, this would lead to a very long answer and I don't want to spend too much time <laughs> talking about this, but um, th this, lead, no, this, le this led to um, no. a company that does a very interesting um, research on, on DNA, and it also um, led to a couple of um, spin-outs that are still ongoing. But as this National Health Sector Database, as it was called, that never, never came into being. The la latest chapter in the story is that now people whose DNA was not successfully sampled are being sent kits, and then the Icelandic search and rescue team knocks at the doors and picks up the kits, and they get the equivalent of $20 for every sample that they collect, which some ethicists are not so happy about because the search and rescue in Iceland is basically, it has the status of the army, they don't have an army, so they have a very high um, public um, symbolic role. But you wanted to say something as well. No, the, I mean, 
the upside is they made lots of important genetic discoveries because it's, mm -hmm. they had a database of over 100,000 people with huge amounts of data. Out of 300,000. And they had rare variants because they're based from Norwegian men and uh, Scottish and Irish women, basically, is their ancestry, <laughs> uh, more or less. More um, or less. <laughs> Vikings uh, again, is it? So anyway, it's an interesting <laughs> right. project. Right, we have plenty of questions here, so let's um, move on. Okay, come to you. I'll take it, thank you. <laughs> uh, Professor Spector, firstly, thank you so much for your talk. I've had your book for a week, and I've read half of it, and love it. <laughs> and if I may have two practical questions. Um, the intermittent dieting or, or non-eating that you talk about, do you personally follow a frequency like that and what would you suggest? And um, you briefly talked about traveling diarrhea if you go to a country like India or whatever. Should we view picking up a different microbe from a different continent as a positive cleansing type of thing that maybe should even be encouraged or... <laughs> How, how should we look? What, what, how do you look at that when it happens to you? Okay, well, I'll take the second question first. So, um, in, in researching the book, uh, people who had bowel problems often you had two stories. Some people who had bowel disorders were, when they went to India, were cured, and others had a lifelong problem when they came back. And so, uh, it sort of depends whether you're, you're feeling lucky and. Uh, <laughs> you know, how well you are before you go. But if you have a perfectly healthy uh, microbiome, I wouldn't go to India to try and infect yourself, uh, is, is, is one lesson I would take from that. But if you had something like irritable bowel syndrome, which about a third of the population now have, which is a relatively new type of diagnosis, which is associated with, with disordered microbes, um, and you've tried everything else, you know, that is a natural... Going to an environment like that is something that, uh, you know, I, I, many people do consider. Um, but I think if you've got a really, you think you're happy with your microbes, but I would certainly not advise uh, doing that kind of trip. But some people have followed that. There are some of my colleagues who take a poo sample every, uh, every day of their lives for the last three years. And uh, the biggest change is when they went to India. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it did change for good. Um, so it is a worry. Um, the funny thing is, though, the people who have a very, um, I would say, monotonous diet, so, or maybe just don't eat the diversity of foods mm. that you want, they're the sort of people who are least likely to want to go to have an Indian diet. Yes. You know, to vary their diet. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's quite a big ask, really, isn't it? Yes, and, and the other question was about intermittent fasting. Um, I, I tried it a couple of times. In a way, it was, I was uh, trying to lose a bit of weight, but I was also interested to see, well, could I do a fast? What was it like? You know, if I was going to write about it, I needed to actually ex experience it myself. And strangely, I found it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, and I've sort of, I don't do this regularly because I don't want to lose uh, weight, particularly at the moment. But I, I do find that uh, skipping a meal... Uh, regularly skipping lunch, having big periods of time between my meals, seems to sort of serve more or less the same purpose. So I think it's changed your mentality that feeling hungry actually can be sometimes a slightly good thing to experience. And once you've felt it and gone past it, 
and knowing that actually your microbes are beavering away, you know, having a spring clean of your gut is actually, you know, uh, quite a, a different feeling to the one beforehand when I just, oh, I'm not going to eat, I'm going to die, you know, I don't eat. So, um, yes, so, uh, but if I wanted to lose weight, that's probably the one I would go for uh, of all the regimes because you could still have exactly the same foods uh, that you like, uh, you're just compressing the times you're, you're, you're eating them, really. And I, I've got colleagues who, who do well on it. Okay. Um, where are the microphones? We have two. Let's have, oh, we just have uh, this gentleman here, and then we could bring the mic to this gentleman Hello. at the front who's been waiting. My question is for Professor Tim. Um, you said that 80% of antibiotics are used in agri agriculture. So does that mean um, if I'm having frequent, say, chicken or cattle, um, does that destroy the microbiome of my uh, gut? Um, the answer is yes. The, 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 uh, unless it's organic uh, uh, chicken or you're, or you're lucky. Um, now, uh, for the last 10 years or so, um, antibiotics have been banned uh, for the purposes of feeding up Animals. It was well known in agriculture that if you give low-dose antibiotics to all kinds of animals, they will get bigger and fatter faster. So it's a gr it stimulates growth for reasons we still don't understand. Um, and it's not yet banned in the U.S. So definitely U.S. chicken you know, uh, is, is going to have more, much more antibiotics than uh, British chicken. But... They get round it, and the reason that 80% of antibiotics are used is because they're still allowed to treat um, colonies of animals or herds for infections or preventing infections. So that's what they do instead. Um, so the levels have come down a bit, but you can get it in farmed fish, you can, you know, imported from Chile and uh, Norway outside EU regulations. And obviously, having antibiotics yourself is worse, but and we don't know in humans the real extent of having these tiny doses on a regular amount and what happens when you ingest them. But the possibility is definitely there, and the animal experiments suggest that if you give animals very low doses of antibiotics, um, into, or, or the same as kids would get, you know, once a year a little antibiotic course, they will get fatter. So there's definitely this, this link between antibiotics. And so... You know, it's no longer a free lunch to have antibiotics. I think that's the key, the key message here. And we ought to be doing more to clean up uh, agriculture and knowing what we're having and getting it out of our, It's in our water supply as well. You really cannot totally avoid it. All right, question from the front here. Even get it in bottled mineral spa water as well. So that's the other thing. Oh, great. I wanted to ask about calorie-controlled diets, which you mentioned at the beginning. Um, just to unpick it a bit, um, I can understand uh, easily that calorie-controlled diets don't work, but I don't think that's the same statement as saying that calories in minus calories out isn't weight gain, and that seems to be a sort of thermodynamic fact. Um, I can easily understand that if you're on a, you try a calorie-controlled diet, probably in the longer term you can't control the calories in, one way or the other you compensate, goes up or down, probably up, um, and on the calories outside, um, your body may change its metabolism and you may um, compensate for fewer calories and therefore no longer lose weight. So I just wanted to understand, are you saying that calorie-controlled diets don't work or that calories in minus calories out isn't um, 
the, con the, well, it's, the, it's the net weight? It's okay. a bit of both, really. I think it's this, this um, you know, before I got into researching this uh, five years ago, I sort of believed naively that, um, you know, the reason we get fat is because we're, we're eating, you know, uh, say the equivalent of half a banana a day extra over what we should, and over time that will cause us to gain a kilo a year because that is an extra calorie that's going on type. And so if you wanted to counteract that extra gain of you know, every 10 kilos every 10 years, you would uh, expend that same amount of energy uh, and that would even it out. So you would have to burn off the equivalent of that half a banana uh, and keep your weight steady. And that was the, that's pretty much the common uh, premise of uh, this calorie control. It turns out that that is completely false because exercising that same amount and the so-called burning off those calories does not make you lose weight to the same extent as eating that half a banana. Um, so the, the, the two sides don't match in the reality of a, of a human, although they, they're, as you said, it's a, it's a fact, you know. It's, uh, but it's a bit like saying, um, you know, like an alcoholic, um, you know, it, it's a fact that uh, if, you know, if you drink more alcohol, um, uh, you, you know, uh, that's, that's related, uh, you know, alcohol in equals um, alcoholic out, uh, but it's, it, it, there's much more to it than that, and not everyone becomes an alcoholic. It's, anyway, um, the, uh, the key thing is that not everyone reacts the same to a calorie. Uh, I can give you exactly the same calories as, as me, and we, we'd respond differently in terms of our weight gain. And that's been shown in lots of twin studies. They did this brilliant study, and they locked students for eight, for eight weeks in a, in a place, and they overfed them 1,000 calories. And some of the students gained four kilos, others gained 13 kilos. They were started the same, everything else was the same. So everyone has a completely different metabolism, and getting the weight off was also completely different. They responded to exercise completely differently. And when you exercise, even when you're, you're fancy watch says how many calories you've burned, that doesn't, equiv that doesn't make you lose weight. It's very depressing, this, isn't it? To be so the thought I of being I, on that exercise but, bike, but seeing the key, calories. It's, it's a complex... I mean, I, I, it's, not a, it's not a simple answer to it, but all I can say is I'm not against exercise. Exercise is going to keep you alive longer. It's very healthy, but and it, you know, cardiac-wise, it's fantastic, and it's better to be fitter and slightly fatter than skinny and unfit, okay? But don't uh, think that exercise alone without changing your diet is gonna do much to your weight. We had looked at identical twins where one has been a regular exercise and the other one didn't. I think after 20 years, there was a one kilo difference or something like that. So it, your body compensates. Right, we have a question from the back there, please. Yes, uh, a couple of quick questions. Uh, very interesting talks. First, has Tim killed off the diet industry? Um, because it sounds as though you might well have done. And secondly, uh, half the week I, I live a bachelor life and I live on microwave meals. Is there any downside to microwave meals, provided I have sort of a, you know, a, a fish risotto with broccoli in it? Is there any downside to that? Because my partner says it'll kill me. <laughs> um. I'm, it'd be a great experiment to do, to, micro, to look at your microbes, uh, depending on whether you microwave them or not. 
Um, I suspect that you'll get less microbes in there. So if you're microwaving your cheese, for example, it's not going to do, uh, it's going to kill off anything good in the side there. Well, they react differently. I mean, you're shaking them up, aren't you? So, you know, it's... Um, no, I'm just making it up as I go along. <laughs> That's what all experts do, you see. So, I've never been asked a microwave question, but... Uh, so, it's a very good point. Someone please do the study, you know, test your microbes before enough microwave. You know, uh, but again, it's more the food that you're eating that is processed, that is non-fresh, that has limited numbers of ingredients in it that is the problem, and it probably contains very little fiber. That's probably much more important. Um, and I, I certainly haven't killed off the diet industry. I'd, uh, you know, uh, I, I'd love to be uh, considered that, that powerful, but everyone wants to lose short-term weight, and most of these things do allow you to lose weight for a few weeks. And people will always want that, and they'll always go for the quick, easy cure that sounds convincing. And, these books are amazingly convincing. I, everyone I read when I started, God, that's convincing. I should, I should do that. You know, and it was only after I read about 20 of them, I said, hang on, they all say the same thing. You know, can't all be right. Um, so yes, no, humans will go for whatever quick fix we can. Now I know there was, a, a, would you, I know you had your hand up earlier. Yes, this gentleman here in the white shirt. I had the impression that uh, there's an evidence base for a diversity of microorganisms in your body. If you expose uh, yourself to a wider range all the time, surely the ones you're going to keep are, and not killed off are going to be the ones that your body decides it likes. And you're not actually going to alter anything. It's really up to the body to make the changes. Uh, well, it depends what, how you define the body, doesn't it? Because if, if, if I've got two different diets, one I'm just having McDonald's, and there's hardly, only the gherkin is getting through to the colon, right? <laughs> that little sliver of, you know, frozen gherkin that is all they, all they get to eat off. And, or I have my fabulous Mediterranean pre-Baltic plate with all my artichokes and things in this marvellous salad. Um, they're... The, mi the microbes themselves, they can swap genes with each other, they can uh, help each other to digest. They, they, they like to use every bit of food that comes in there. That's what they're designed to do. They're these amazing hoovers. And so um, if there's one species you know, that uh, only eats apple cores or something, the pectin, they will do very well if you're eating apples. But if you're suddenly uh, you're eating leeks and it needs another group, um, those dormant ones or other ones that are just, you know, you might eat leeks once, a, once every, a month and they're just hanging around, just ho hopefully you're getting that uh, little drop of leek and suddenly the, a fountain of, you know, you're dropping them tons of it, then they will produce and they'll have other ones that feed off their byproducts uh, and other microbes, the whole colony will start growing because you're introducing a new food into that chain that they're all eating these um, short-chain fatty acids and these chemicals that they're giving off. They leave nothing to waste. And we that's, can't that's influence the key. That process. Sorry? We can't influence that process, can we? Well, by Consciously, eating things um, differently. 
Yes, by eating more diverse foods, you will increase the diversity of your microbes. Okay. Which is a worry, really, for anybody with children or have had children that have gone through that age where you take them out for a meal and you go for a children's menu. The children's menus are dreadful because they are just usually macaroni and cheese yeah. or a slice of pizza or fish fingers. And often, in some places, it's quite difficult to actually get vegetables with the children's. Yeah, there's virtually no fibre. And this is very different to, to children brought up in, in hunter-gatherer societies where they have massive amounts of fibre. And a colleague of mine was showing me pictures of all these children with bloated bellies. And it's not because they've got quashia core or some disease. They're actually ferment they're fermenting machines. They're farting all the time. Uh, they, they're having 20 times the amount of fiber that the average Western kid is having. And uh, that's what uh, keeps their immune systems uh, uh, so much better than our, than our kids. So it is a, 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 you know, orders of magnitude different. And we are probably doing exactly the wrong thing for our kids, and as I said, the kids' meals should be banned, I think. In, yes. And other countries don't do it. You don't get kids' meals in Spain or no. Italy or France. So, Is there any... Um, have you found any connection between the rise in allergies, particularly to nuts and things like that, with microbes in, in the diet? Or is that perhaps something that's at the next stage along? Um, all allergies have gone up. But what's interesting is that the asthma epidemic we were seeing in the 80s and 90s has leveled off, and the food allergies in the last uh, 20 years has taken off. And uh, we think that there is a, there's a clear link between your microbes and general allergy, and there could be the specific problems of food allergies is because we're less exposed to more diverse foods and the way that pregnant mums are being told to reduce their foods. In this country, we're obsessed with, you must avoid all sort, types of salami or meats, Prawns, prawns, cheese. So brie. they're having a more and more restricted diet, which in other countries they don't do. You know, you ask the average pregnant French woman, so, you know, she'd laugh at you if you said you can't eat this and that. We say, what am I going to eat? Mm. <laughs> and not uh, fish so fingers. Get, get impressions as well. So, um, so you know, and there's there's evidence from mice that that, that they've given fibre to uh, pregnant mice and shown that that massively increases the diversity of their microbes and that reduces the allergy levels in their kids. And these are sort of genetically bred to be allergic mice and you can actually reverse that. So again, it's, it's all these generations and some of these effects you know, are probably seen from, perhaps from, you know, from the, the mother to the baby and those first three years could be absolutely crucial in this. So the opposite, you know, rather than avoiding peanuts, we should be actually eating peanuts. And mothers should be eating peanuts, and everyone should be having a whole range of things so that our bodies are used to it, and suddenly, you know, we don't have this, um, this big shock when we see something new. Well, we have, I think, time for a couple more questions, and then we'll... So, Tim, you described reading all these books on different diets and being initially convinced by almost everything you read because they all seem so plausible. What advice do you have for other people in the same situation? Like, I mean, like myself, I, mean, I, I went through the same situation. I was very convinced by the low-carb stuff from Gary Taubes and uh, William Davis. I mean, uh, how, how can we cope with so much apparent expert advice, which is apparently so well argued? And, and, what, and what do you have to say about the low-carb diet and the theory that 
modern wheat is uh, all changed and it causes all these uh, irritations and uh, so forth. So uh, the key in these books is most of them have some common sense in them and a lot of the facts are correct and they're extremely eloquently put over. But then uh, they take that, their particular idea, which is the, the thing that makes them millions, and expand it so much like uh, the idea... Yes, everyone would agree that we're having too many refined carbs. Okay, so too much pasta, potatoes, uh, polished rice. Uh, and, and this has been a reaction to... Uh, what we've been told to reduce low-fat foods. Uh, you know, I stop high-fat stuff, have more carbs, and instead of having vegetables and healthy high-fiber stuff, we've gone for the refined things. So, again, we can agree on that, but then they always go a bit too far and say, okay, these are totally deadly, and, you know, if you just have one spoonful of it, that's going to cause toxins and all this kind of mumbo-jumbo. It just goes into this... Any, avoid any book that mentions the word toxin. Okay, that's a, good, that's a good guide because it doesn't exist in your body, you know, this, this idea we're leaking toxins and uh, our only this special yogurt drink or this uh, deep cleanse can purify your body and get rid of it. Again, no uh, credible scientist believes in these, these toxins. Also, these ideas that, uh, they, they, you know, that we haven't evolved that uh, we can't have new foods, therefore we have to have a paleo-type diet. This is again a myth, and we, we know that we've actually adapted to drink milk only in the last 3,000 years. So you think, all our evolution, uh, we didn't drink milk. And you look at our European culture, and, and it's based on uh, milk and dairy products, which only happened 3,000 years ago by a mutation that 90% uh, of us now have uh, in Northern Europe. Uh, just in a few thousand years, a few hundred generations. So the idea that we haven't you know, evolved to eat pasta uh, or evolved to eat starch in an area that is, is also untrue. So I think it's, it's a question of saying everything in moderation. Yes, some of these recent books criticizing uh, the official line that fat is bad, I agree with, but it's just they often tend to go too far and then say you have to exclude that. So I'm not saying exclude anything. I'm just saying... You know, it, even these bad things might be good uh, in some way if, if they're part of a diverse uh, diet. That there isn't one thing you have to exclude. But basically, if, if most of your food is real, non-processed, has lots of fiber and lots of diversity, you're not going to go wrong. And stop blaming one particular ingredient for causing all society's ills. And that's what most of these books do. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place uh, to end. And I think it's to think about food as a, a smorgasbord, really, and a, a wonderful buffet exactly. as opposed to a plate of chips. But uh, So Tim Spector and Barbara Prainsack, thank you uh, very Prainsack, sorry, thank you very much indeed. It's been incredibly enjoyable. Before we um, show our appreciation, you've probably seen that um, if you're interested in buying a copy of Tim's book, it's available at the back of the room. And also on your chairs, if you've enjoyed this talk and you'd like to hear more, uh, if you became a member of the Society, you, it will save you money if you want to come to other talks. So do pick up the membership form as well. Um, thank you very much indeed. I'm Sue Nelson. and Thank you all very much for joining us.